right. So 1 Timothy 5, all right, there we go, there's a screen, I like it. Different blue screen, much better blue screen. Sure. I got surrendered past two years ago. I started this church. And I've been blessed every Sunday since two years ago to this day. Well, praise the Lord. Thank you for saying that. Yep. Yep. Glad you're here. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to try to finish chapter five tonight. And we come to the third group uh, that are addressed in this chapter. You'll remember we talked about the. Uh, he talked about the age dynamics, how Timothy is to deal with the older uh, people in the church, the younger people in the church, male, female, all that. Then we spent a lot of time last week on the care for widows and all the different uh, stages of life those widows may be in and how provisions are to be made for them. And now we get to the last one, and he comes back to the idea of elders. Now, back in chapter 3, he gave us stipulations for the elder or the overseer, and now he comes back to this office, particularly in reference to how Timothy is to deal with elders in the church. So how do you deal with older women? How do you deal with younger women? How do you deal with older men? How do you deal with younger men? How do you deal with the widows that need to be provided for? And how do you deal with your fellow elders? So let's go ahead and read our text. We'll start in verse 17. Uh, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So here is our outline for tonight. He's going to talk about, in verses 17 through 20, how to honor and protect deserving elders. Um, but then he's also going to talk about discipline for those leaders who have strayed. Apparently that has gone on in Ephesus. We've talked a little bit about that throughout. And he's urging Timothy to follow these directives uh, to protect from both unwarranted, unsubstantiated accusations, but on the other side also to prevent showing partiality uh, with the leadership inside the church. So we'll look at those three ideas. I want to take a second and talk about this idea of first among equals that I think is being communicated in this verse, then talk about elders who lead well and elders who are in need of correction. Then he goes into a series of what we might call warnings and admonitions. He's, he's providing Timothy with some warnings and directives that he can practically use in his struggles. Uh, some of them are personal. We saw the one about drinking a little bit of wine. We'll talk about that and why that's in there. And others because I think Paul is foreseeing when Timothy has to make these stands on some of these doctrinal issues 
there's going to be conflict with some of the leadership in the church, and he wants to prepare him. And so he's, he's making suggestions to prepare Timothy to be wise in these confrontations, especially in dealing with the elders there in the church. And then that final statement really connects with verses 21 and 22, but he talks about the idea of sins and good works being evident uh, in the life of the elder. So let's start in verse 17, and we'll spend a little bit of time there. But Paul says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So once again, we've talked about this back in chapter 3. Elders, presbyteros, overseers, episkopos, are titles that refer to the same office. These are not two different groups. These are the same groups of people. In chapter 3, he calls them overseers. Here, he calls them elders. I like how one commentator describes this. If we were kind of, why does he say overseer here and elder here? Uh, this commentator said the overseer was used when the emphasis was on the character of the work. What does the overseer do? He oversees ministries in the church. And elder is used when the emphasis is on the honor that they are due to receive, the respect that goes with the office. And, and it seems in this verse that Paul is making uh, somewhat of a delineation between some elders and others in that there are some that are worthy of double honor. And, and I think that makes sense, not in the sense that there are uh, senior elders and junior elders, but that there are delineation and function in some elders. I think that's what he's trying to explain here. And, and he's got Timothy in mind in this whole dynamic. And I think that makes sense if we interpret this verse correctly. And, and concerning elders, the fact is that probably in every church throughout its history, there will be elders worthy of commendation and there will be elder, elders in need of correction. That's just going to happen in the life of a church, and so Paul gives some advice here. And Paul wants Timothy to be prepared to deal with both of those potential issues. Uh, notice again, it's Timothy that's being tasked to deal with the issue. He's an elder, no doubt, but he's being given the authority to lead as, as what is often called in modern scholarship the, the first among equals principle. I want to explain that a little bit. This is the book you want to get, by the way, if you want to read about eldership. Now, probably most of you don't. <laughs> but if you want to read about what eldership is supposed to look like in the local church, this is the go-to book. It's by a man named Alexander Strauch. And he, uh, he, he's also got a book on deacons that is very good as well. But he's a huge proponent of a plurality of elders leading the church. That's his model. And, and his practical explanation of the strengths, the weaknesses, the frustrations, and the biblical approaches that he lays out is really helpful. And, and in chapter 2 of his book, he explains the, the balance between uh, shared leadership and what we see here with Timothy, that Timothy is being given some responsibility in dealing with fellow elders, what, what he calls the idea of first among equals. And I believe that's what Paul is communicating to Timothy, specifically in this verse. Uh, Strout goes so far to say, failure to understand the concept, or 1 Timothy 5.17, has caused some elderships to be tragically ineffective in their pastoral care and leadership. And he continues and says, team leadership can be an organizational sand trap of inaction if good principles of management, communication, and clear delineation of responsibilities are not implemented. Since the eldership itself is a group, just as the congregation is, it requires organization or it will flounder in disorganization, undiscipline, and aimlessness, which again, I think, brings us back to what Paul is communicating in 517, what I would argue in the letter as a whole as well. That, that Strauch argues that Paul's point is that elders act jointly as a council. They share equal authority. They share equal responsibility. They share the leadership of the church. But the fact is, 
just as it is in any group, in any team, in any group of people that get together, they are not all equal in their giftedness, right? And so the the sports analogy is this. Uh, If a team wins the Super Bowl, if the Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl last year, well, Aaron Donald's the best defensive player in football, right? He got a Super Bowl ring. The guy that plays special teams also got a Super Bowl ring. He's part of the team. He's no less a Los Angeles Ram than Aaron Donald is, but Aaron Donald carries a lot more burden than the guy on special teams does. And so they're not any less of a teammate. They're not any less of, of an elder, but there are differences in, in giftedness and function. There's diff- difference in biblical knowledge and leadership ability and experience and dedication. And so what is Paul saying here? That there will be those elders that, that, that stand out. That, that are selected for leadership because of what they can do, particularly in, in teaching and preaching the word, um, because that's the, that's the main component of this whole thing. And, and Strauch supports that view from Scripture. He says, look, there were 12 apostles, and no one apostle was more apostolic than any other apostle. Right? And yet, three of those 12 took a prominent role, and one of those three took a more prominent role. And I mean, there are nine apostles, and we could probably go six or seven of them, that all you hear about them in the Gospels are their names. Right? But they're no less apostles. They're still one of the ones that Jesus chose. They're still serving. They're still very important parts of that. But the fact is, Peter was a spokesman. Peter was given responsibility. He was given authority in those ideas. Uh, further examples, he talks about the seven faithful men who were selected as deacons in Acts 6. Who do you remember of that group? Philip and Stephen. But there were others. They were faithful. There's no indication that they weren't. Uh, Paul and Barnabas travel together on the first missionary journey. They're sent as a team. They're equal in standing. Who's the leader of that expedition? It's Paul. Same way when he was with Silas. Uh, and, And the concept is supported by the way in which Paul instructs the church to honor the elders. All elders must be able to teach. That's chapter 3. But those who are gifted and spend the time doing so are to be recognized for that. That's what Paul says. It doesn't mean that the first among equals is a CEO. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't create a scenario in which he's the pastor and then everybody else are the elders. It also doesn't create a situation where the elders are the the board and the pastor is an employee. That's not the situation either. Strauch says the advantage of the principle of first among equals is it allows for functional gift-based diversity within the eldership team without creating an official superior office over fellow elders. Just as Peter bore no special title or formal distinctions from the other apostles, not the first pope as some might contend, elders who receive double honor form no official class or receive no special title. The differences among the elders are functional, not formal. And the benefits of following this model, I think, and Strout uh, talks about this, leaders are able to exercise their specific gifting from God to its fullest potential. And this approach protects against the two ditches. The, the overbearing CEO on one side, which certainly has happened in some churches, and the passive lack of leadership on the other side. You want to avoid both ditches. You want to be able to move forward. And so not everybody can be the special teamer. Not everybody can be the wide receiver. We need to all play the different positions. And it's biblical, and I think that's the model that's supported and strengthened by Paul in the pastoral epistles, particularly in 1 Timothy. All right, let's get back to it. 5.17 is also a very important verse in our understanding of the work of the elder. What does the elder do in the church? Paul gave us a detailed list of qualifications back in chapter 3. But the specific duties of the elders were not discussed there. In 1 Timothy 5.17, we get at least two of them. At least two. 
And the first is that they rule well. That well, that actually says well-ruled, but well, kalos, it's that same better, good idea that we've seen throughout the letter. It's the same term used to describe the management of one's household in chapter 3. It's used in reference to church leadership in other letters, Romans 12.8 and 1 Thessalonians 5.12. This division here leads many Presbyterian churches to have two distinctive groups of elders, which I would disagree with uh, in terms of making them two distinctive groups. But if you've been in a Presbyterian circle, perhaps you've heard of ruling elders and teaching elders, that there are two different groups. I don't think it's that, that, that delineated. I think maybe that's the way it might work out in a functional uh, leadership idea, but that's not what is being designed here. That's the case functionally, but I see no reason to create two sub-offices of a larger office. That rule well, I know that when you hear rule, that sounds a little dictatorial, right? That you rule well, the elders are ruling. That's not the usage here. Authority is communicated, but it's better understood as to manage, It's this superintending of what's going on. And that management would be characterized as as firm but gentle. That's the idea. And we've seen that earlier in the chapters as well. The requirements of chapter 3 pointed to some of the facets, if we kind of use Scripture to fill in Scripture, of what it meant to rule well. Well, in chapter 3 it said that elders needed to be hospitable. So why do they need to be hospitable? Because elders would direct charitable ministries in the church. They would go and shepherd people. They would minister to sick people. So they need hospitality. There was a demand that they not be lovers of money. What does that tell us? That means elders must have some financial responsibility in the church. They're going to be handling money. The requirement that they have a good reputation with outsiders suggests that they probably had something to do with evangelism or missionary work. They needed that good reputation to be able to go out in those places. And so As overseer makes explicit, there's to be oversight of church affairs by qualified elders. But there are those within the elders who would have a heavier additional responsibility, and that's in number two, that they work hard at preaching and teaching. It literally says work hard in lago, word, and teaching. Literally work hard in the word and in teaching. That word work, copiantes there, It's from the verb copeo. It means to labor to the point of exhaustion. We saw this word also in chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul was talking about the work of the ministry. The ministry of the word is to be undertaken with seriousness, with intensity, with everything that one has. And and this shouldn't come as a surprise because back in chapter 3, verse 2, it said explicitly that an overseer must be able to teach. And, And we know this, and I think most people in the room, I'm preaching to the choir here, Preaching and teaching are the practical foundation of the biblical local church. Christ is the foundation of our church. Don't miss that I'm changing that. But in terms of our practical participation, the foundation is the preaching and teaching of the word. It's step one in evangelism. It's step one in discipleship. It's step one in counseling. It's step one in church discipline. And it's to be given both time and effort. It's not ever to be gone through the motions with. It's not ever to be, uh, we'll see what happens when we get up here. It, it was signified in the layout of the Reformation churches. If you ever study the way churches are built, that's an interesting little rabbit hole to run down. Hey, you ever look at any of the medieval cathedrals and all kinds of stuff? It's really kind of cool how those things were laid out, the shape of crosses and different things. But if, I know some of you grew up in the Catholic church, what's at the center of the Catholic church? It's the altar. The altar is the center of the Catholic Church. But when you go to a Reformed church, a Protestant church, what's the center? 
the pulpit. Okay? The altar has been replaced by the pulpit. Rightfully so, I would argue. Right? We don't have to make any more sacrifices on an altar because it's finished. One sacrifice once and for all. We don't have to break the body of Christ and pour his blood out every week over and over and over and over again because he's already accomplished that. What are we to do? We are to make disciples through the preaching of his word. That's why the pulpit sits at the center of the church. And that's the move from that idea. And I think Paul gets this idea here. What is the primary responsibility of the elder? Preaching and teaching. And those that bear that burden all right, are to be recognized in a different way. He says they are worthy of double honor. What is double honor? What does that mean? There's a lot of opinions on that. Okay? It literally reads double honor worthy. Uh, this is the same worthy term that's used in Hebrews 3.3 3 in reference to Jesus in comparison to Moses. It says, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Uh, considering the verse that we're about to cover in verse 18, I think it likely that the double honor consists of two things. One is the respect and the honor that's due the faithful teaching elder. And number two, financial compensation. Now, I know that's the preacher telling you you got to pay the preacher, but just that's what it says. I, it's the next verse. What do you want me to do? Okay? I didn't just choose to do this. I'm not looking for a raise. That's what it says. Not that bivocational ministry is a bad thing. Right? There, there are faithful men out there that are bivocational ministers, and what I mean by that, obviously, is that they work a job and then they, they preach on, on Sundays at a church. But Paul's point is that laboring in the Word is so important to the health and the maturity of the church that provision should be made for that elder or elders who labor in word and doctrine so that they can devote sufficient time to it. Okay? That The fact of the matter is I, I, people come up and talk to me and they go, well, I don't know how you do what you do every, every week. Well, I get a lot of time to study. You guys work all week. You, you couldn't do it because you don't have this amount of time unless you were going to go on three hours of sleep every night. Hey, that I, th- and that's, that's why PBC is honoring this, right? They're giving the elder laboring in teaching and preaching the word sufficient time to do that so that it can be labored in effectively, hopefully, right? But that's why we are given that time. And so th- those whom the church really honored were the ones who worked to edify the church and build it up by preaching the truth. And, and additionally, in the early church especially, and, and now today as well, they were the ones that were primarily involved in, in educating the young and new converts in the faith. They were the ones who were preachers. They were disciple makers. They should still be. God wants the local church to mature and grow because the local church is not a building. The local church are, is his people, and he wants his people to grow. He wants them to, to mature. He wants them to be equipped. Who does that? The elders by preaching and teaching the word. Now, there's much more that follows that, but that's ground zero. That's where it starts, right? Discipleship starts from the pulpit. Counseling starts from the pulpit. If you just listen to the word, then we don't have to go to step two, right? This is where it begins, and that's the centerpiece, and, and, and he wants his church strengthened. He wants his church protected. And that's done primarily through teaching and preaching. So Paul says, take care of those men that labor in the word so that they may do it more effectively, so that the church may be made strong. Here's his scripture backing up, verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Let's talk about these 
references. The first quotation is from Deuteronomy 25.4. It's a direct quotation. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Okay, so go home and look at your oxen, and you can see what, what's going on here. All right, we need to explain this metaphor, right, so we know what's going on. Um, when threshing was done in the ancient Near East, normally what they would do, a threshing floor was usually a round thing. Okay, picture a round thing with a post in the middle. And they would bring the grain down, and they would dump it into the threshing floor, all around the floor, this round kind of uh, thing. And then you would tie up your animals to the post. And maybe there was one, maybe there was two, depending on how big your threshing floor was. And they might have been dragging something behind them, right? And they, you would get them moving, and they would walk around in the circle, and they would thresh out that grain. They would drag whatever implement you had over it, and they would thresh out that grain. And what is Paul saying? Don't put a muzzle on them when they're doing that. If they bend down and grab a couple bites of the, the, the harvest that they're helping to thresh out, let them eat. Right? They're doing all the work for you. Don't muzzle them and not let them eat if they're going to do all the work. Okay? And so that's his illustration of take care of your elders. If they are laboring in the word, then let them get the crumbs from the ground at the very least. Right? Let, them, let them have that because they're putting in all the labor. Paul's second quote is from Luke 10.7, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, this is an interesting inclusion because what does Paul say at the beginning of verse 18, as it says in what? The Scriptures. Well, it's no surprise when he references the Scripture and quotes Deuteronomy, but now he references Scripture and quotes Jesus. And this happens to be found in Luke 10.7. I'll give you a few other verses to give you the context. But this, you'll remember, is when Jesus sends out the 70 in pairs to the different cities in Galilee to prepare the way uh, for him coming. And he says this in verse 5, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. By the way, two pretty solid sources for Paul's argument, Moses and Jesus. That's a good thing to build your argument on from Scripture. Now, here's the discussion. A little sidebar, real quick. Here's the discussion among scholars that isn't really an issue for us. But if you're reading study Bibles and commentaries, depending on the one you have, maybe you'll see this. Paul quotes from Luke's gospel and calls it Scripture. Okay? Well, the issue arises because Paul, the, the, Paul's letters are uh, the most definitively early manuscripts from the Old Testament, even in liberal scholarship eyes, that they don't, they don't dispute the fact that Paul wrote in the 50s and 60s. Okay? But what do they often make very late? They often date the Gospels very late. And so they run into a quandary here, because here is Paul quoting Luke, and their party line is, Luke wasn't written until the 80s. So how does Paul call it scripture and quote it here? Well, it's, it'd be funny if it wasn't dealing with such a serious subject, but the party line is, well, there must have been a document that contained many sayings of Jesus, and Paul was referencing that document. We've never seen that document. Nobody's written anything about that document. Nobody's, there's no fragments of that document. The document doesn't exist. But that must be what it was. It wasn't that Luke wrote the gospel when he talked to eyewitnesses and actually did exactly what he said he did. Here's why it's not a problem for us. We talk about 1 Timothy being written in the 63, 64, somewhere in that 
time period. Luke compiled, and I'm going to say this fairly definitively, Luke compiled his gospel from 57 to 59. And we did that while Paul was imprisoned at Caesarea Maritima. That's Acts 23 to Acts 26, if you're putting this in your time frame. I think that was the time where Luke traveled all over Judea and Galilee and talked to these people. I think he talked to Mary. I think he talked to many others. And he says right there at the beginning of his gospel, I got this from many reliable eyewitnesses. And that's when he did it. And guess who commissioned him to do it? It was Paul. I think Paul said to Luke, we need a a gospel for the Gentiles. I want you to go and get these eyewitness accounts so that we can distribute this to Gentiles. So Paul would have been interacting with Luke. Luke would have come back to Paul and reviewed information with him. I think they ultimately review that with Peter. But all that to say, Paul was intimately connected with Luke writing this gospel. And so four or five years later... It's not a violation for Paul to say this is scripture. He understands inspiration. How, does, how do the apostles understand inspiration? I don't know. Right? But I think the apostles knew when inspiration was going on. I can't say that definitively, but I think they, they understood the difference between a note they jotted down to a friend and an inspired scripture. Something must have felt different <laughs> when they wrote those things. And so this is not a big issue that Paul quotes from Luke and calls it scripture. I think he identifies it correctly. Anyway, back to the text of Luke Luke 10. You'll remember at the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus begins that, that section with the statement, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That same laboring idea. There is work to do. And so you, and so what's he saying? Don't be ashamed that you're being provided for. This is important work. Notice he says, if you go into a house and they give you a place to stay, and they give you food to eat, don't feel bad. They are doing this because you are doing important work. And if they are willing to keep providing for you, then humbly accept it. Give them peace. That's what you are to do. Don't feel bad about that. Everyone who works deserves financial support, right? We know that in the real, in the secular world. The harder people work, the more they deserve, usually. And I'm not arguing for, you know, a, a progressive scale of salary for ministers, but, but, but the, the compensation should reflect the work. And, and, and Christianity, as much as some liberal folks would like to say, has never had anything to do with that sentimental idea that everybody gets equal share. That's not how it's designed. That's never how it's been designed. We've got parables from Jesus saying the exact opposite. He gives what he wants to who he wants, and it's his prerogative. But the reward that should be proportionate to the level of labor. And he says, if this is the most important thing, and it should be, then take care of your elders. Don't let them go hungry. And again, I, that's, this isn't a gripe session. I'm not, not trying to push anything. But I know of guys that worked in churches that made peanuts They worked their tails off, but they made peanuts out there, and their families are suffering because of it. And so now they have this huge conflict of, well, I'm called to serve. I want to serve the Lord, but I can't pay my rent. That's a problem. That's because when those things are going on, how can they focus on the word if they're being left destitute in laboring for the word? That's all Paul is trying to say. Provide for your people, especially the ones that are doing the most important work. That's that's the idea of the local church. Now, he, he... Paul actually explains this in a little more detail, and he did this about a decade earlier when he wrote to the Corinthians. And I want to show you that real quick. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? 
I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, here it is again, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Now, interestingly enough, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't even claim that for himself. He's not even making an argument for himself. He's making argument for others. He he commends this this remuneration as the norm for the established church. Take care of your elders, especially those who are preaching and teaching. All right, verse 19. Now we go to another issue that's in the church. It says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So 19 and 20, Paul discusses the process of of discipline for elders who are in error. First, he warns against accepting an accusation against an elder unless two or three witnesses support it. Now, this is very much Jewish. We know this is from Scripture. The Mishnah, that's the codified rabbinic law, not the word, but the Jewish oral law, they describe the process of the trial like this. The second witness was likewise brought in and examined If the testimony of the two was found to agree, the case for the defense was opened. You'll remember when Caiaphas has Jesus on trial the night before his crucifixion. He he has a witness, and then they try to bring in a second witness to corroborate it, and their stories don't match. He, He can't find a second witness to legitimize the case, and so they can't open the case against Jesus because he will not be incriminated. If a charge was supported by the evidence of only one witness... The Jewish law said there was no case to answer. We throw it out of court if there is not a second witness. In later times, church regulations laid it down that the two witnesses must be Christian because in those days when persecution was going on, it would be very easy for a non-Christian to raise malicious lawsuits and accusations against a Christian elder in order to discredit him. And in discrediting him, hopefully discredit the church. That's what they wanted to do. John Calvin said, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. He continues, they may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. Now, you'll remember Calvin was run out of Geneva uh, by his own people at one point. Of course, they brought him back a few years later. Uh, And my favorite John Calvin story is they ran him out of town and he came back. And the first Sunday he was back in the pulpit, he picked up on the verse that he left off on three years earlier. Okay. I just picture him going, now where were we? You know, it's good stuff. Now, understand that Paul is not urging special treatment for elders. He's urging for fair protection against capricious accusations. Elders were liable to be disliked. They were especially open to attack because if someone was rebuked for sin earlier, perhaps they want to get a little revenge and they would maybe attack an elder for it. Uh, Those who had been disciplined might seek to come back and get back their side and maliciously charge him with sin or something like that. Now, here's the point. The early church didn't hesitate to dole out discipline. They're not a church that doesn't deal with church discipline when it was necessary. But Paul is arguing not that they should get special treatment, but that they should at least be given the same amount of protection that any person, any Jewish person under the law would be given. At the very least, let's use this two or three witnesses idea. 
Okay? Because we know there are going to be more accusations, so let's make sure they're protected. And, and the reality is that a smear campaign can ruin a leader's ministry. The power of accusation, whether that's true or untrue, is pretty remarkable. And it's, I would argue it's even worse in today's world. All someone has to do is put out a post on social media that so-and-so is an abuser of ABC. And it doesn't matter if it's true or not. That is that person's reputation for the rest of their days. Truth is not even involved anymore. And so the power of accusation is really important to understand from this perspective. So Paul's first word to Timothy is that he doesn't listen to gossip about church leaders or even to a serious accusation if it's only made by one person. We're not even entertaining it if it's made by one person. Every charge must be endorsed by several responsible people before it's even listened to. You don't even get a a platform to talk about it unless we have multiple witnesses. By the way, I think Paul would say, he's using it in a specific context here, but that practice should be church-wide. I don't think we would argue that it should be any different for anyone. If someone comes to you making an accusation about a fellow believer, several things should happen. Have you gone to the person that's been accused? And if they haven't, they should be rebuked for that. And three, if there are no witnesses and no one is willing to come forward to talk about it, it should be dismissed out of hand completely. Throw it out of court because it's not legitimate. Warren Wiersbe said, Where there's smoke, there's fire may be a good slogan for a volunteer fire department, but it does not apply to local churches. Where there's smoke, there's fire could possibly mean that somebody's tongue has been set on fire of hell. James 3, 6. Wearsby's not usually that punchy in the face kind of thing, but I like that. The fact remains that this would be a happier world and the church would be happier. Maybe healthier is a better way. If people would realize that it's nothing less than sin to spread stories whose truth is not sure. Irresponsible, slanderous, malicious talk does infinite damage. It causes infinite heartbreak. And such talk will not go unpunished by God and it shouldn't go unpunished by church leadership. What about the ones where we do have substantiated things? He moves to that in verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Sometimes when rebuke happens, the sin will be continued. The rebuke will be ignored. Sin will be pursued. If that's the case, Paul says, we've got to deal with it publicly and we've got to deal with it definitively. Notice those who continue in sin. This is a sin that is ongoing. That means it has been attempted to be dealt with privately in accordance with Matthew 18. All efforts have been exhausted, all requests have been rebuffed, and at that point public rebuke must take place. Or the church risks being implicated in sanctioning sin, at the very least tolerating sin. And so there are three questions that come up with this idea in verse 20. Those who continue in sin... Who's involved in the sin? Is this referring to elders or is this church members in general? I would argue here that the verse doesn't call the, say elders explicitly in verse 20, but from the context that we've been talking about the last several verses, I think the natural deduction is that he's talking about elders, sinning elders specifically. And the present tense of the word sin suggests the practice was continuous, not merely an isolated occurrence, one that is ongoing. Now, when he says that there should, be, uh, there should be a rebuke done in the presence of all, what does that mean? All the elders or all the congregation? Enopion pantone, pantoners from pas, it means all. It appears to suggest, I would say, a group larger than the assembled elders. 
So I would say those involved in sin is talking about sinning elders, unrepentant sinning elders. Number two, where does this rebuke take place? I would argue that it happens in front of the entire congregation because the entire church should learn from this rebuke. And then, so that answers our question number three, who are the rest who will be fearful of sinning? Is that the other elders or the congregation? Well, hopefully it's both. But I think in context, it's the, it's the entire church. I think Paul has the church in view. That if we take sin seriously with our leadership, we're going to take sin seriously all the way throughout the church. The open rebuke Paul proposes was intended to promote the fear of God within the congregation. The fear of God is a good thing when it keeps you from sinning. He doesn't envision a vendetta. What he wants is to avoid partiality toward leaders. He wants fair treatment, just treatment for all. And so this approach would sober some of the sinners in the congregation. I better knock my stuff off or I'm going to end up in the front just like that guy. And and it made others take care that they don't end up in that same situation. And and, and let's not mince words. That's a humiliating situation. Nobody wants to go through that. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to enforce that. Nobody wants to go to to be on the other end of that. We've had to do church discipline from time to time. It is the most unpleasant thing we have to do. It's not a fun thing, but it is a necessary thing for the local church to do to, to, to protect themselves. The threat of publicity within the church, that is, not outside it, is not a bad thing if it keeps people on the right path. Okay? Now, it's kind of one of those things where we, we talk to young people and we talk about the reality, you know, you, you evangelize and you talk about the reality of hell. Now, I don't think that's the only thing you should talk to people about when you share the gospel, but you should mention that part. That's part of the equation, isn't it? And, and, and fear of hell has led people to explore the gospel. So there, again, I'm not saying you should just be all hellfire and brimstone, but you can't do it without it sometimes, and so it can be a good thing. A wise leader will know the time to keep things quiet and know the times to do things publicly. Whatever happens, the church must never give the impression, not even the impression that is condoning sin, that they're letting this guy slide while they go after the sin of someone else. That's what Paul wants to protect Timothy from. And how serious is he about it? Verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. All right, several admonitions start here towards Pastor Timothy. And his instructions concerning the church is pretty serious business based on that verse, don't you think? He charges him in the presence of God, of Jesus, and of the chosen angels, it's literally the elect angels, the eclecton angelon, the elect angels to exercise these commands without bias or respect to persons. You are not to be a respecter of persons when it comes to sin and church discipline. And what do you know? How many witnesses does Paul invoke here? <laughs> three. Okay? By three witnesses, and they are the highest witnesses you could invoke. The principles Timothy is instructed to keep, I think, are specifically these things in verses 17 to 20, because these partiality things, these references in dealing with elders. To practice favoritism suggests leaning or inclining in a certain direction so that that partisanship, that relationship can influence the outcome of an investigation. Paul says we need to do everything justly. Evidence needs to be examined on its own accord without deciding results beforehand based on who's involved. Paul knows that sinful men are prone to faction. We like to get into groups. We like to get into gangs, those kinds of things. And factions specialize in partiality. They specialize in preserving their own self-interest. And if the gang is influential enough and powerful enough, they can really cause havoc within a body. 
One commentator said, the well-being of every community depends on impartial discipline. Nothing does more harm than when some people are treated as if they could do no wrong and others are treated as if they could do no right. That's a problem. Justice is a universal virtue. It's not relative. And the church surely wouldn't fall under the standard that even the world sets out. We should be of a higher standard than that. Furthermore, Paul's appeal had a certain urgency about it. Can you, can you hear kind of his urgency in his writing? What, what that tells us, I think, or suggests that these aren't just merely general suggestions. It's not, hey, you know, when this comes up, you do this. No, it's, Timothy, this is going to be a, a problem. It's, you have issues in the church right now. You're going to have to do these things in the near future. So, so, so I need you prepared. I'm concerned about what's going on in the church. I need you to be able to deal with these things. The fact is, what we've seen already is that some of the influential elders in the church at Ephesus had strayed from the truth, and they were having a detrimental influence on the fellowship of believers there. Timothy is going to be required to stand firm. And I'm sure it was neither easy nor pleasant, but it was necessary. And so Paul is, is, is telling Timothy, gird up your loins and strengthen yourself and do this biblically. Here's some more admonitions, verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Paul, I think here, is warning Timothy of the danger of making hasty appointments to church leadership. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 6, he said, make sure an elder is not a new convert because he might be conceited. He might fall into pride and Satan could get a foothold. Paul, Paul's hinting here that one who participates in a hasty appointment shares in the sinful results that follow. So if you put someone unqualified in that spot and he wreaks havoc on the church, you bear responsibility for that. So be very careful about who is put into these positions. It seems... I think based on this verse, that some elders in Ephesus had been installed too hastily. That's Timothy's implica- Paul's implication. This has already happened before. Don't make the same mistake again. Right, this, this frees you up from a lot of headaches if you'll do this on the front end rather than having to deal with on the backside. Paul again appeals for personal purity in Timothy. He ends that with keep yourself free from sin. Purity involves separation from immorality. It involves a a single-mindedness of purpose, of pursuit of godliness. Timothy is to be above reproach. Why? So that he can be above reproach when he deals with issues in others. He cannot be a hypocrite. If he is a hypocrite, his, his words carry no weight. And so he needs to make sure, especially among the elders, that he holds himself pure. Verse 23 is a strange verse, isn't it? No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse seems out of place, doesn't it? Seems kind of shoved in the middle here. I think what this sentence shows us, and, and I think this is Paul. I think this is one of those things, and you get this with Paul. Read his, read his letters. You'll see things like this. Um, he, he, he'll be on a subject, and something will come to mind, and he'll just interject it. And then he'll get right back on topic again. He does that frequently. But I think what it shows you here is the intimacy of the letter, how much he cares about Timothy amid all the affairs of the church and the problems and the administration. Paul finds a little time here to slip in a little bit of loving advice. Remember, he, he, can't, he doesn't have Microsoft Word. He can't insert later. He can't cut and paste. Hey, I, well, I rewrote it. I got to keep moving now. I'll get it in here and then we'll keep, keep going. Hey, he, he puts in this advice about Timothy and his health. 
And again, it seems a little bit out of place, but I believe what we're seeing is Paul's continuing concern for Timothy's purity. I think it's connected to the purity in the previous verse. It leads him to give some personal advice about a physical ailment that Timothy's been experiencing. Perhaps the stress of the ministry has added to Timothy's physical ailments. You know, he's got an ulcer or something. You know, I don't know what it is, but something that where his stomach is sometimes upset. Again, let's get the context right. In the ancient world, and I could extend that far beyond the ancient world, water could be questionable. There are still places in the world today where water is questionable. You don't just drink water without a lot of things being done to it. But wine was reasonably safe when not drunk in mass quantities. And so uh, water exclusively, the way Paul describes it there, reflects the fact that oftentimes in that culture when wine was served with meals, it would be diluted with water. It was oftentimes two parts water, one part wine. And so when he says don't drink water exclusively, he's saying add a little wine there because it could help the ailment that you have. And and, and so now you get people going, oh, you mean wine's medicinal? All right, party on. You know, like it's like that maybe that's what's going on. Paul's not advising Timothy to live it up. (laughs) You know, that's that's not what it is. I think there's two things that might be going on here. Remember in chapter 4, verse 3, there were those ascetics, those ones that were forbidding certain food and drink to be had. Perhaps that has something to do with it. And they were shaming Timothy for even entertaining the thought of drinking wine, and he had acquiesced to their request, and in doing so, he had made himself more physically sick. Uh, Additionally, here's a quote from, from Kenneth Wiest. He says, We must remember that wine was one of the chief remedial agents of those times in which the science of medicine was in its infancy among Greek physicians. Many physicians and ancient sources suggest a little bit of wine for those kind of ailments. Uh, Hippocrates, that's where we get our Hippocratic Oath. For doctors, he said that was a medicinal thing. The Talmud says drink a little wine for stomach ailments. Plutarch, Pliny, it's all over ancient literature where they mention this idea of wine being used as a medicinal thing. Again, that doesn't mean go drink a bottle, but it means it could be used to kind of help some stomach ailments. Now, is that true or not? I, I don't know. But that was kind of a understanding of what things were, right? I mean, I know they used to put leeches on people, right? Probably not the best approach, okay? Um, they needed a booster leech to make it better for the next time around. <laughs> they just needed one more leech and it would have worked. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't resist. But I think that's what's going on in that verse. I think Paul is, is just kind of a little side thought. He was in the middle of his thought, and he said, you know what, Timothy, take care of yourself. Make sure you're in good health because you've got some, you've got some things you're going to have to deal with. All right, verse 24. He says, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are, evident, are quite evident, and those who are otherwise cannot be concealed. So I think if you really want to understand this, use 23 as the parentheses and put 24 right after verse 22. Don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility. Keep yourself free from sin. The sins of some men are quite evident. Okay? So he's, he's continuing that thought we started in 22. And elders should not be put into authority hastily. That's where he started this. And, and, and what is he, what's the argument here? Time solves a lot of problems on this. That how do I know if this potential elder is elder worthy? Well, give it some time and let's see what he does. Let's see what his life looks like. Let's see what kind of fruit he produces. And he says, over time, sin is often revealed. 
and good works are often revealed. Time takes care of a lot of problems. Paul says eventually neither one of those can be concealed. Now I know they can be concealed for a time, but eventually one of those will win out. And so elders should not be hastily installed or hastily dealt with or dismissed from that idea. Let the totality of one's life over time speak for itself. And it most certainly will, Paul says. Simply put, the absence of a bad reputation is no evidence of the presence of truly desirable qualities. Just because, well, I've never seen him commit a crime doesn't mean he's elder worthy. Just because he seems like a nice guy doesn't mean he couldn't turn that around in a different situation. So give it some time. Let's spend time with him. Let's get to know him. Let's see how he acts with us, with his family, in the, in the public square. And, and, and on the other hand, maybe we don't know the guy. We don't have any good reputation points to talk about. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy. Let's spend some time with him. Let's get to know him. Let's see if there is fruit in that person's life. That, uh, those excellent qualities sometimes require time for appearance. Sometimes it requires maturity. That's why he says, don't make a new convert an elder. Let him mature. Let us see that. Let's see what kind of things he brings to the table. And, and those qualities, Paul says, will establish themselves. Now, when he says down here that the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment, most of the time when we hear judgment, we think eternal, right? And anytime we talk about judgment, that's in play, right? In the sense that God will ultimately judge all sin. But I think the context here, uh, it, it, it involves more of judgment on the church level, I think. Now, I think both of them are apl- applicable here, but I think there's something in the idea of the church must judge these things. And so I think the judgment Paul mentions here is not God's final judgment, but a rejection by Timothy or the church of a, a, a leader who's unfit. I think that, that you will be able to judge whether they're fit or unfit based on how that they live their lives. It's an admonition for church leadership to lead, to deal with sin when it arises, even if it's perpetrated by good friends, even if it's done by influential people, even if it's done by longtime elders. If if Timothy didn't practice this judgment, then the danger of which he had warned in verse 22, the sharing of other sins, would occur. Paul says you don't want that burden. You don't want to be sitting around going, oh, I'm the one that recommended him. I'm the one that that voted him in. Why? And now he's tearing apart the church. What did I do? You don't want to share in that sin. And so he says, just be careful. Now, some of that stuff, it happens, right? We can't control what other people do. But Paul just says, do your due diligence. Make sure you're doing this the right way. Make sure you're careful about this because it is very important. And these are the elders that will be handling the word. You better make sure you've got faithful men if they're going to be handling the word. And and sometimes difficult decisions need to be made for the sake of the church and for the sake of the name of Christ. And I would say, just from my perspective, that's the stuff they can't really teach you in seminary. (laughs) You can learn all the theology, you can learn the languages and all that, but stuff like this that Paul is giving Timothy is on-the-job training, and sometimes you just get thrown in the deep end, and I think that's what happened with Timothy at Ephesus, and and so Paul has basically given Timothy a church manual for local church administration, and at the same time, a personal application to things that are going on in his own life. He says, Timothy, I know you didn't sign up for this. I know, I know this isn't what you expected. I know this is, this is overwhelming at times, but this is what you're called to, and here's how you need to handle it. 
be strong, stand firm in the faith, keep fighting the good fight. Remember, this is, this is the man that Paul calls his spiritual son in the faith. He cares about him, so much so that he throws in the middle of an inspired scripture, take care of your stomach issues. Uh, that's how close this relationship is, and that's what Paul is trying to accomplish when he writes this letter. So we can take this to ourselves and say we can apply this to 21st century church, and we can say, well, look how it applied so perfectly in the first century. That church organism, that body of Christ uh, elected and saved and redeemed by Christ, uh, the, 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 the way, what it looks like might, different, might be different. The building might look different. What we wear might look different. The way we sing, the way we interact might look a little bit different. But the truth is the truth. Scripture still stands, and this is how we're supposed to run the church, based on the Word of God, not our own uh, preferences and definitions. All right. Three minutes. Any questions? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Kat. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that comment. Oh, she was just talking about like uh, our the the elder we've added recently is Marshall, right? But we took our time and did our due diligence with Marshall, even though there, all appearances at the beginning were he's elder material. He didn't get installed day one. He stayed for a while before that happened. So it's yeah, trying to do what Scripture tells us. Yeah, Jan. Yeah, we need it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, appreciate it. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the practical advice it gives us. Thank you for the divine truth that it stands for, uh, the, your bride, your church, the people you died for, the people you shed your blood for, um, your word, your perfect word. This is the place where it's preached. It's taught. This is where your spiritual gifts are exercised. This is where uh, godly fellowship happens. Um, Lord, it's important, and I pray. I think those in this room understand that that's important, Lord, but let us never forget the importance of it. Let us never forget uh, this body of a local church that you've designed to, uh, to preach your gospel, to disciple uh, people, to take that word to the outside world, that um, we wouldn't view this as an activity. We wouldn't view it as a, as a club we're part of. Lord, this is your body. This is a this is your covenant people uh, being brought uh, in faith to you and to salvation and to pursuit of godliness. And uh, may we honor that, Lord. May our speech, may our behavior, may our interactions reflect that reality. We do give you the glory for it, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.